This is part 14 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. The Hero Peter Quinnell Live and Jackie cowered under the awning as a police car screeched around the corner and a wave of relief at the familiar colours washed over them. Almost instantly it evaporated as a window wound down and the driver began with crazed and joyless intensity to toss lit fireworks out onto the street. As the light and colour and smell of gun smoke shrouded the car, it spun around in a great screeching donut and accelerated away again. Run! Peter gasped to Jackie, and they bolted blindly away from the commotion. Behind them there was a boom, a rumble and a crash as the gas bottle finally exploded and the roof of the LJ hooker collapsed. They dashed blindly through the streets, turning whichever way had the fewest miscreants and hooligans, blind with chaos and desperation. And then suddenly, simply, it was there. A vision in cream with burgundy trimming, garnished elegantly by a simple red sign, Australia Post. The post office was abandoned, but the front door swung loosely on its hinges. Jackie and Peter stumbled through it. The chaos outside tamped down a few decibels and they noticed the hazy yellowish light in the air was less oppressive in here. They both sank to the ground and panted. It was cool and dark in the post office. The shelves were still neat and the floor clean and free of debris. The crime wave somehow had not touched the post office. After a couple of minutes of winded inertia, Jackie rose to her feet. She hobbled over to the particular standing ledge that all post offices have for customers to address their envelopes and flipped to the index of the Gregory Street directory. She traced her finger down the list of street names starting with M until she found what she was looking for. It was 5 Marlborough Street. She flipped back through the book to the page that had that section of the map on it and tore it out with clammy intensity. Got it, she called out to Peter, then retreated back out onto the footpath and began peering around irritably for street signs. She ran across the road, Peter following, and as they reached the far pavement, Peter touched her arm. Listen, he said. She paused to listen for a moment, one ear to the breeze, and heard it, the low buzz of motorcycles revving. It got louder. It might be getting louder, Jackie said. Yes, Peter replied. I think it might be. As they stood and listened and waited, the buzz did indeed move. And it got louder. And they took that to mean it was getting closer to them. And then moments later, when the motorcycle buzz became a snarl and then a roar, Jackie and Peter retreated back to the farthest edge of the pavement by the buildings. The motorcycles got louder and louder until they eventually peeled around the corner, riding in a slow and confident V formation. 
At the head of the formation was a thick and muscular man with a red face and a white moustache. He wore no helmet but a red bandana around his neck. A leather vest and a singlet was arranged around his cylindrical torso. The choice of sleeveless garments showed off tattooed brumbies that galloped up his arms. Behind him rode five other motorcyclists, but they were covered up with helmets and full jackets. They displayed the deference of henchmen. The posse of five rode slowly up the street, the leader zooming lazily over the roundabout in the middle of the road. And when they were perhaps 40 metres away, they spotted Peter and Jackie and began to shout. It was a wild and jabbering shriek, a combination of trills and barking and whoops. It chilled Peter and Jackie to the bone. They revved their engines, sending up a deafening snarl into the late morning air. And as they got a little bit closer, they noticed Jackie and began to grunt with horrifying vigor. The leader pointed at her bag and made a garbled choking sound and the gang began to imitate it. It was inhuman. They gunned their engines and mounted the pavement, zooming past benches and light poles. And when they were only about five meters away, Jackie reached down and pulled off a shoe and hurled it at the leader. The shoe flipped through the air at surprising speed, arcing upwards only slightly until it found its mark. Its sensible heel plunged into the man's eye. His head jerked backwards and the handlebars yanked roughly to the left. The bike wobbled and then toppled over towards the pavement, pulling its rider down with it. And as the momentum carried both bike and rider, they drifted towards a light post. There was a horrible wet crunch as the man's head hit the base of the pole and snapped back. He lay still on the ground. For a moment, his neck was at an awful angle. Then his motorcycle was pushed over the top of him as the rider behind him in the V formation frantically tried to avoid him, mounted the curb and collapsed on top of his bike. There was a crash and a screech, then the hysterical revving of an engine that found no road for its tire. The second rider picked himself up and fled. The remaining three brought their bikes to a halt near Peter and Jackie, looked at each other, then tore off into the distance. Jackie realised she was shaking. She looked down at her hands. They shook. Her peripheral vision went black. She focused on her hands and they shook and they seemed to make everything else shake too. And she rested them on her knees to brace herself and vomited an empty, watery splash onto the footpath. Don't worry... Peter said. He couldn't find what else to say. Don't worry. The empty streets that had felt merely mysterious and foreboding now seemed terrifying. We need to go, Jackie choked out. We've got to find Leanne. We've got to, we've got to go. She steadied herself with a hand on Peter's shoulder and he awkwardly tried to brace her. Please, she said, holding out the scrap of paper with the map on it. Five Marlborough Street, please. Peter squinted frantically at the street corners and at the map and back to the corners. The map was an incomprehensible tangle of tiny white paths and microscopic street names. The land was a camouflage patchwork of shaded green and brown and didn't show landmarks. He could find neither the post office nor Marlborough Street and in a panic he thrust the paper back to Jackie, but she shook her head and mumbled, please. Peter held the map up to his face in desperation, scrutinizing it, but he could find no relief. He choked out a sob. What was that? Jackie asked. She had straightened up. Peter was humiliated. 
A rich violet flush of blood bloomed across his face and he grasped thickly at his collar as he drew himself up to his full height. I was simply coughing, he told her. But she wasn't listening. She was backing towards the wall again, her face a mask of horror. And then Peter heard it too. More vehicles, more roaring cars and shouting, whoops and hollers. No, he moaned. And as he did, a police car careened through the intersection at the end of the block. Its tyres screeched and threw up a plume of thick grey smoke as it pulled a stomach-turning spin through the corner, fish-tailed and straightened up and gunned it towards them. It was followed almost immediately by a fire truck and then a throng of people on foot. As they rounded the corner, Peter's heart leapt. They weren't a gang. They were mothers, old people children, some teenagers, the real residents of the country town. The police car screeched to a halt in front of them and a uniformed cop hurried out. He approached the body and felt for a pulse for a moment, then stood up and addressed the crowd. It's true, he announced. Chuck Pernod is dead. A cheer went up. The cop spoke again. The day has come at last. Albury Wodonga has been returned to its people. Another cop mumbled into a walkie-talkie and was answered by a blare of static. Stand back, please, the first cop called out. Stand back, please return to the footpath. The assembled throng slowly cleared the street in a gleaming white Bentley with a thick silver grille and black-tinted windows that was decorated with New South Wales police colours crawled up. The passenger door swung open and a senior policeman with long arms and legs and white hair that stood straight up on his head stepped out. His face was a perfect rectangle, and his brows made a comically surprised inverted V over his eyes. He stretched stiffly, then walked over to where the dead man lay. He knelt down and inspected him for a long time before standing up. He turned to Peter and Jackie. I'm the chief, he announced. He looked at the corpse. Well, he continued, squinting, it appears we owe one of you a debt of thanks. That was Chuck Pernod, and he's been mostly responsible for the crime wave we've had around these parts lately. The police chief was mostly right in that it had been Chuck Pernod's idea to have a crime wave and had instigated the initial spree of crimes that had so grabbed the imagination of the people in the area and inspired the further criminal activity that led the whole affair to be dubbed the largest crime wave in the town's history. Of course, Chuck Pernod's brief run of stylish car thefts, looting and vandalism would have amounted to nothing more than the rap sheet of a single troubled individual if he'd acted alone, which he did not. In a sense, he acted with the town, not literally to begin with, but in a highly metaphorical sense. Without a depressing and almost entirely unaddressed status quo of poverty, unemployment and youth suicide, one man may not have found it possible to get a crime wave off the ground. Similarly, if it wasn't for a handful of acts of minor corruption from a small number of local councillors and politicians, the residents of the town may have been inclined to side with the authorities over a charismatic and, some said, handsome outlaw who was taking what he wanted and thumbing his nose at the local police. And it's entirely possible that if the local police had responded to Chuck's criminal activity in an organised and professional way, that the whole thing might have blown over relatively quickly. 
instead of what actually happened, which is that the police chief fired a shotgun at him while he was enjoying a cold glass of Resch's Lager at the local RSL club, but had missed and instead blown a hole straight through the wall to the RSL kitchen and clipped the gas line and a fire had started. And in the chaos after the gunshot, a 98-year-old veteran of World War II named Harold McKenzie had fallen over and been burnt to death. Any of those factors, had they not eventuated, may have coloured Chuck Pernod's actions entirely differently. Peter sensed an opportunity. It was me, he said. I did it. There was a rumbling from the crowd which had begun to assemble. But it's a woman's shoe! A voice called out from the throng. I asked for her shoe, Peter said. My shoes have laces so they're hard to get off. She gave me her shoe and I threw it. Is that true? The police chief asked Jackie. Is he telling the truth? In one crisp motion, the eyes of every person in the crowd snapped onto Jackie. Peter swiveled 45 degrees towards her and raised his eyebrows. Time slowed down. The police chief fumbled in his breast pocket for a pen and slung one hand backwards for a notepad from a constable. The blood rushed to Jackie's face and she scanned their faces hoping to find the answer. And when she could not, she smiled and nodded. Well, the police chief beamed. There it is. Now, three cheers for this gentleman. What's your name, sir? Peter Quinnell Live felt his old strength returning. Peter Quinnell Live, he hollered. Hip hip, the police chief called, and the crowd screamed, Hooray! Peter Quinnell Live beamed. Hip hip, he called again, and the crowd screamed back, and Peter Quinnell Live raised one fist above his head, and for the third time, the police chief called out and they screamed once more and Peter Quinnell Live ran down into the crowd. The crowd reached out to touch him. He luxuriated in it. A small girl clutching a teddy bear squeaked, Thank you, Mr Quinnell. And her mother covered her mouth and said, Leave Mr Quinnell alone now, sweetheart. He's busy. A burly firefighter in full uniform, his face smudged with soot, nodded respectfully. A group of goth teens in eyeliner flicked their black fringes to one side and jutted their chins in an almost imperceptible gesture of welcoming. A beautiful woman in bright red lipstick kissed a calling card and handed it to Peter. Look me up sometime, she breathed. And a producer with a headset and clipboard from the local TV network took him by the elbow and led him to the side of the road where a broadcast van had screeched to a halt and a cameraman was frantically unpacking. Would you mind to give us a comment, Mr Quinnell? The producer asked. And Peter told her, It's actually Peter Quinnell live. And she nodded. Peter Quinnell, live in five, four, three, two. The one was silent. I'm here with the man who saved a town, a voice began. Peter looked around to find the source of it. He could not. The New South Wales Riverina town of Albury has been plagued by a crime wave for the past three weeks. But the reign of terror of a charismatic outlaw was brought to an end this morning when Peter Quinnell... And here Peter felt a tugging at his elbow. He looked down and realised the source of the voice was right in front of him. A squat, ugly, middle-aged man in a cheap suit and wonky glasses. Peter stared at him in disgust threw a woman's shoe at Chuck Pernod's head, knocking him for his motorcycle and killing him. Peter, what inspired you to act so decisively in the moment? Peter reached down and wrenched the microphone from the man's hand and signalled subtly to the cameraman to follow him. These leafy streets, 
he began, gesturing around him while maintaining steady eye contact with the camera. Have this morning been restored to the tranquility to which they are accustomed, but it's a dramatically different story to the same time yesterday, when a crime wave of unrivaled proportions was in full effect. Now, my training as a reporter instructs me to recuse myself from my story, but when injustice is being perpetrated, I have no choice but to act. When I witnessed the macabre spectacle of Chuck Pernod riding boldly down this very street, I instructed my companion to hand me her high-heeled shoe, and I threw it without hesitation at Pernod. He fell from his vehicle, and his head struck a lamppost. He suffered from his injury for just a short while before regrettably perishing. Peter gazed back at the logo on the broadcast truck. Peter Quinnell Live, Riverina News. He smiled benignly at the camera until the producer shouted, Cut! Wonderful stuff. I'm quite experienced in this field, Peter told her, and looked back to where the rumpled reporter stood dejectedly on the phone to his boss, who was telling him he was fired. Oh, we know, the producer said. Brian's fired. We're giving you his job. Go mingle. A line had formed a few metres down the street of people who wanted to meet Peter, and they burst into applause as he returned to them. Dunces, yokels, left-eyed and hopeless, they were the people Peter knew how to work. He winked. He shook hands. He took selfies with children and kissed a grandmother's thick and rubbery jowl. Please, a young mother told him, bless my baby. I'm not a Catholic, Peter stammered, but she said it didn't matter. Then I bless this baby, he said, and she walked away happy. Should I pursue my ex-wife in the family court for custody of my kids? A man in a blue singlet demanded. Uh, no, Peter told him, and the man nodded and walked away. Another man, this one wearing a colourful one-piece outfit, told Peter he was inspiring. I'd love it if you would come to my all-male choir's rehearsal this afternoon and give us some feedback on our singing and on our new smocks, the man proposed. Uh, no thank you, Peter said. A 35-year-old man with a skateboard told Peter he was trying to go pro and needed to get his name out there. And could Peter mention his name on TV? Maybe, Peter told him, for a hundred dollars. The man opened his wallet and handed over a hundred dollars. I meant two hundred, Peter added quickly, and the man gave him another hundred dollars. At the end of the line was a very old man with long greasy grey hairs that clumped together across his shiny bald head. His skin was the colour of clay and the skin below his sunken eyes gaped outwards to show little pink half-moons of inner lid flesh. He had deep wrinkles all over his face. He looked like someone had dried out a tree stump. He looked like a tissue that had gone through the wash. He wore a baby blue sash across his chest that read Mare. He was the Mare. Welcome, welcome, he coughed. Mare Bart Darby, a pleasure, a pleasure. He looked like a crook. His eyes were deeply suspicious, but besides that, he was a small town mare. He belonged to a genre of individual who would be overrepresented in any criminal stock take. Peter Quinnell Live had anchored enough stories about small town mares to know that, without exception, they had their fingers in enough pies to land them three to five years behind bars, every one of them. Bart Darby thrust a hand out to Peter. It was thick, soft and cool to the touch. It was accustomed to being thrust into the grip of opportunity. It was hard to avoid the idea that it may have, at some point in the recent past, gripped similarly the hand of the criminal elements that had so completely overwhelmed the town of Albury. How could such brazen, violent crooks take over a town and yet leave the mayoral sash unmasked? How? 
Here was a perfect visual metaphor for the state of things, vis-à-vis -vis the disproportionate way organised crime affected ordinary people versus municipal leaders or whatever. There was something in it, Peter knew. He looked around half-heartedly for a camera. In truth, Mayor Bart Darby had nothing to do with the crime wave. Despite his grandfatherly appearance and ponderous way of talking, he was basically a moron who fucked up perpetually. He'd only ever become the mayor because the guy who was the mayor before him had screwed up worse. He'd tried to fuck another councillor without being seen, so they went to the budget hotel near the freeway to do it. While they were there, the woman working the front desk recognised them. He threatened her, but she was a notorious gang boss's sister. The gang boss sent some associates to wait in the car park and make him apologise, but when he came down the steps after having sex with the other counsellor, he was emotional for personal reasons and refused to apologise, so they shot him three times with a pistol. He didn't die from it, but everyone knew the story after that. When they held the election, people remembered the name Bart Darby. It was just a memorable name. The fact that he was a moron didn't mean that Bart Darby had nothing to do with the crime wave. Actually, he tried to involve himself in it because he was smart enough to know that you can use chaotic environments to magnify a little power into a lot of power. He just hadn't been successful. If there's anything you need, Mayor Bart Darby croaked to Peter Quinnell live, anything at all, anything at all, you understand. You know where to find me. He gestured behind him at the town hall. We can always use a hero in Albury. He winked and thrust a bunch of flowers into Peter's hand. At the end of the line was a sporty-looking woman in a visor cap who nodded smartly at Peter and asked him if he'd ever done any sailing. You see, she elaborated, I'm the editor of a sailing magazine. We're based here in Albury. I'd love to do a feature on you. Peter looked up in alarm. This woman bore all the hallmarks of being the same woman for whom Jackie had been searching and the sudden recollection of Jackie reminded him that he had taken credit for her action. He blanched and shuddered. Uh, are you okay? The woman asked. Peter stared at her. Leanne? He asked. The woman looked around suspiciously. How do you know? She asked. And suddenly Jackie was there, behind Leanne, and she touched her shoulder and gently asked, Leanne, it's me. It's Jackie. Leanne's face made a surprised O, oh, and she spun around to look at Jackie. It's Jackie, Jackie repeated, because she didn't know what else to say. Leanne's face held a congenial smile for a second more, and then for a devastating millisecond it fell, before rearranging itself into a beaming mask. It was too late, although no one would admit it. Leanne knew that Jackie had seen her slip, and Jackie knew it too. And Peter knew it as well, although that was less relevant, but he knew it all the same and tried to help them recover, which made it worse. He blustered and brayed about a lucky coincidence and clapped them both on the back, and Jackie laughed and smiled also, and so did Leanne, and they all tried to convince themselves that their act was real, because how could it not be real if they were all performing it? Leanne invited Jackie to have a cup of tea, and Jackie nodded towards Peter and asked if he could come as well. I've kind of been travelling with him, she explained. Of course, Leanne told her. Take a few days, the TV producer said, handing Peter her card. Peter turned to address the crowd once more. I'll be leaving you for a while, he boomed. I've been offered the hospitality of one of your own. Please buy your copy of Recreational Sailor to thank her. Peter and Jackie threw their bags into the boot of Leanne's station wagon, and the assembled townspeople respectfully cleared the street, forming an honour guard on either side of the road. 
Peter opened one of the rear passenger doors and stood for a moment longer, basking in the adoration of the Albury residents. Say, the police chief said. It caught Peter off guard. He flinched. Your name again, what was it? Uh, Peter, Peter Cornell, he stammered as he ducked his head and clambered into the seat. He slammed the door and Leanne began to drive. The chief squinted through the window and wondered why the name was familiar. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash Laverne. And please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. I love it when people get in touch about The Horse and the Rider. Thank you to Twitter user Macrotus Lagoti, who said, very glad I clicked follow on your Tumblr years ago, uh, which is very nice, but please don't DM me about Tumblr. Uh, please rate and review this podcast if you can, and if you haven't already, check out my Substack, infinitegossip.substack.com. It's a whole bunch of short stories and poems, and I send out more all the time. If you know anyone who's into blobs, make sure you tell them about this podcast, because next week in episode 15, the entire episode is all about a very difficult blob. So it's a great time to blob in, as they'd probably say.